When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Kate Mangino titled Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equality at Home, published by St. Martin's Press. Dr. Mangino is a gender expert who works in international organizations to promote social change. She has written and delivered curricula in over 20 countries about gender equality, women's empowerment, healthy masculinity, HIV prevention, and childhood marriage. Dr. Mangino, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, I was wondering if you could tell us how this book came about. So because of my profession, I'm labeled as a gender expert, and I for a long time was going to Zambia and Indonesia and uh, Kenya and Nepal and having quite sophisticated conversations about gender with all of these communities all over the world. And then 11 years ago, I became a parent and for the first time, and I realized how antiquated the gender conversations were at my own, in my own house, in my own community, at the playground, at work. And, but I wasn't the gender expert in those personal situations. And so I didn't have an entry point. I was always struggling with how to tactfully bring up gender. And so this book, for just a long time, I wanted to find a bridge between my professional life and talking about gender and addressing gender inequality with my personal life, where I saw quite a bit of inequality and I didn't have an entry point. And so that was sort of where this book originated. Mm. So what are you trying to accomplish with this book? I think that um, a lot has been written about defining our problem, right? Um, Bridget Schulte wrote Overwhelmed and um, Darcy Lockman wrote All the Rage. And those are fantastic books that sort of chronicle where we've come from and how we have ended up where we are. And the pandemic and the fantastic reporting and journalism that happened, especially in the first year of the pandemic, really brought to light the inequalities in our household. And all of a sudden, those little household problems weren't just about people's personal lives that we didn't need to talk about all the time. It sort of became a national emergency when we realized what was happening with women when when our social networks and our support networks were taken away. And so what I wanted to do is move is, so we've defined the problem. That's fantastic. I'm grateful for everyone who got us here. And now I want to move to what do we do about it? Because are we just stuck? Is, Is this our reality that we just have to put up with? Or can we actually 
change it. And so my book is about that change. All right. Yeah. And I, I, you know, amen to that. I mean, social (laughs) change is that's, that's where everything I feel like gets stuck. I feel like that's where the bottlenecks are in, in the world. And I, it really resonated with me um, very deeply when I, when I was reading this. So the entire first part of the book is on acknowledging inequality. Mm -hmm. So why was that whole first part? Why was that important to you to really articulate what it, you know, that there is inequality? Because I didn't want anyone, because I think if you launch right into how are we going to fix it? I didn't want to lose any audience members who weren't there yet, right? I had to make sure everyone is on the same page. So I needed to start off with the first chapter is sort of like your literature review. It's heavy in data about what is currently a problem and to make it explicitly clear that this isn't just a problem for women. It's a problem for everyone. It's a problem for everyone of every gender that inequality hurts all of us. And to make that explicitly clear, because I was hoping to... You say you can either preach to the choir or you can grow the choir. And so my first section was trying to grow the choir. I was trying to get more people aware of the inequality that they see in their own lives and their own community. Um, I interviewed a, a professor from Utah named Dan Carlson, a sociologist, and he had a quote that I thought was fantastic. He said, if you think the race is over, you're going to stop running. Right. And so I just wanted that first section is to say, hey, everyone, the race isn't over. <laughs> we have to keep going. We haven't achieved gender equality. There's a there's a lot more work to do. Yeah, I had a student one time. It was in one of my classes, not my women's history class, a different class. And he uh, said that he asserted in class that there was no gender pay gap. And so I answered him and I, you know, we went back and forth a couple of times and I said, you know, it really doesn't give me any joy to disagree with you. I wish I could agree with you. Um, But there is, I think, a um, also some disinformation Mm -hmm. out there Mm -hmm. to um, to say that this is not happening. And I. uh, I find it, you know, I found that this section so important, even for that reason, right? Yes. That that there is this this narrative out there that not only is there not a pay gap, but that inequality it's it doesn't exist anymore. Right, right. And we just I just wanted to, yeah, just drive that point, make it crystal clear, and we still have <laughs> inequality. And I, you know, I think one thing that happens is because we have a separation of tasks in the home there's an assumption that it's an equal separation. And I use this as an example, the inside outdoor, like a lot of, and I, I still, to this day on my Twitter feed, will get tweets from male readers. I don't actually think they read my book, but male Twitter <laughs> responders who are saying, we're done with this conversation. We don't need to have this conversation. This is the same old thing. It keeps coming up. It's been 10 years. Your book is nothing new. And I just want to say, you know, I'm going to keep writing about it until we solve it. I'm, it's, you're right. We have been talking about this for a long time, but we we haven't fixed it. So I'm not going to move on to something else until we fix this one. Mm-hmm. If you tell me, I have parity in my household. She does the indoor tasks and I do the outdoor tasks. 
great. I'm going to tell you about the data that sociologists have done about the time and the cognitive labor involved with indoor versus outdoor tasks. Yes, I agree with you. It is a way to separate chores, but it is not anything near equal. And so I think that these are ways that um, we just need to sort of maybe do a better job of reconciling our perception and our reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you talk about it being how inequality is harmful. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that uh, part of, of the section? I think it's harmful because it sets limitations up for everyone. When you have norms and expectations about what someone should do, behaviors and, and roles they should perform because of their gender identity, by giving them a list of what you should do, you're also you know, implicitly giving them a list of what they can't do. And that sets that limits people. So when you're talking about women, if you um, set, it could be setting limits for, okay, let me rephrase. If you give her too much to do in the home, if her household burden is so great, that's going to limit what she can do professionally. And that's going to limit her income potential, income earning potential. She's less likely to put in her hat, put her hat in the ring for a job promotion. She's less likely to work overtime and be noticed by the boss. She's less likely to take on a management position that's going to keep her later in hours because she already feels so overwhelmed with what she has to do in the household. That's harmful. It's setting a limitation for her. What we don't talk about enough is how much it sets limitations for men. When we pigeonhole men into that income generation, you're just a helper in the household, but you're not actually fully invested. You're not competent enough to be a primary child care um, provider. You're not competent enough to run a household. We're also putting limitations on him. And men I've interviewed for the book and men that I've spoken with since the book has come out have told me over and over I love being a dad. I love being a partner. I love participating in my household. My career, my job, the way I earn money doesn't fulfill me. That That's a myth that men are fulfilled by their work. I am fulfilled by being with my kids. I am fulfilled with being to my chickens in the backyard, whatever it is. And so that's also putting limitations on men. So I just think that if we open up gender norms and allow all people to be who they truly are, that is going to be better for everyone. Mm. I, you know, what I was uh, thinking about too, the idea, cause you, you are do such a great job in this book of uh, taking an intersectional approach with race, class, ethnicity, religious, cultural backgrounds. And I remember, you know, reading over the last couple of years about how racism is being quantified in physical health as well, mm-hmm. that, that the impact of enduring racism makes, takes a physical toll right. on someone's well-being as well. And it seems to me like this is all very much woven together, um, the the, the norms, the roles that are forced, foisted upon people and um, how they're, how they have to, in, how they internalize it, feel about themselves and, um, and, and it creates misery. It does. And I'm so glad that you raised that point because inequity causes a poor emotional health and it can lead to poor physical health. You know, we, during the pandemic, we heard from millions of moms who are suffering um, from emotional health, we saw an uptake in, in alcoholism and the use of alcohol. And then we see all these physical problems that are coming from 
use of alcohol. And we see that in men as well, that there's, um, when you have lack of emotional connections, when you feel pushed away from your family, when you feel like you have to perform masculinity at home and you can't be your own true self, all of these things lead to poor emotional wellness. And that can lead to um, heart problems and depression. It manifests in the body in very physical ways too. Mm. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Yes, that inequality can have very significant health problems. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I talked to my class about this sometimes too, about my own dad, which who, you know, was really of a very old school. My mother did everything. He just was the king of the castle. <laughs> and um, when I was raising my son and taking him to things like the pool club for uh, the summer, how many dads were there alone with three kids and the bags and the inner tubes and the goggles and the towels and how happy they all, you know, he was doing that. And I said, you know, to me, that was like, oh, there's some progress going on. (laughs) And I said, you know, from my dad's generation to the men I see truly engaging with the, with their children and that I was experiencing myself, I thought was like really great progress. Yeah. <laughs> then I was reading your book and I understand the there's gradations here. And right. we'll, I mean, we'll it dig into that. It yes. is great progress. Absolutely. And, and we have further to go. I think that both of those statements are true. And when you just gave me that example of the pool bag, you know, I would, I think, you're right. That is great progress. And it is lovely to fe- to see that. And my next question would be who packed the pool bag? That's probably what you were thinking too, right? Like <laughs> you have to pack the pool bag and say, take the kids from one to three, or is the dad so part of the family that he's like, Hey, it's a great day. Let's go to the pool. And you know, exactly which of your kids likes to have goggles, which of your kids is going to need a snack where you keep the swim diapers, right? And I think that that's a good analogy or story in sort of this evolution of dads and partners. Absolutely, you know, and I just felt like your your book too takes it to a more granular level, a granular level of understanding um, the differences here and the gradations of difference, which are so crucial. So I want to read a quote from page 80, quote, why is it that people who value equality still find a way to perpetuate sexism in their own homes? I know that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I know so many friends and family members who would call themselves feminist, but yet they still perpetuate sexism. I think half the times they don't realize it. It's become so normalized. Gender norms, we, we confuse them with truths you know, because we're so used to them and they've been happening for generations that we don't see them. We don't see it as sexism anymore. I think sometimes people, you think it's just my family and you, it takes someone to do the research and show the data and be like, actually across families, 80% of them are doing it this way. And then you're like, oh, I'm part of a pattern. This isn't just about personality. This is, this is a pattern of behavior that, um, is gendered. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and Alison Daminger has done some fascinating research um, around this idea. She worked with different sex couples uh, in the Boston area and found she worked with couples specifically where both partners said they valued gender equality and equality was something they were trying to achieve in their relationship. And yet none of them had. 
And so she was trying to figure out the what, and, and she said that what she found is there were three choices. There was, um, you can change your value, <laughs> say, I don't, I don't actually value gender equality, which no one's willing to do. You can change your behavior, which is really hard and takes a lot of time. That's what the book is all about. Or you can sort of reframe your behavior so that it doesn't look like it's a gender issue. And I think, and Allison found that, um, Damager found that a lot of people are doing that reframing. They're like changing the narrative so they can continue to have their values. They can continue to have their behaviors, but they don't label themselves as falling into sexist or misogynist patterns. And I think that's where we really need to spend a lot of our attention is how are we reframing it? And let's catch ourselves, not in a mean, I got you a moment, but it just as a self-aware moment of, oh, I need to stop doing this <laughs> because this isn't, this isn't getting us where we want to be. Right. You know, it's like walking the walk. Yeah, precisely. You know, I, I, I think that a lot of men who consider themselves feminists who understand and, and value feminism, um, you know, probably still don't pick up their socks. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that, you know, it's, it's really being aware of and reflect on mm-hmm. these, these questions in the domestic sphere. Um, you know, and I teach a course in women's history, which I mentioned, and we start the semester on methodology. Like, how do we do women's history? How are we going to answer these questions? What kind of things do we need to look at? We're not just going to add women and stir, you know, we're going to really reconceive of history. And I use an interview with a historian named Gerda Lerner, and mm-hmm. she talks about patriarchy. And she talks about how old patriarchy is and how patriarchy is harmful to both men and women mm-hmm. and how patriarchy teaches men that they are more important than they really are. And she said, mm-hmm. that's not a good way to become a human being. Nope. And so then I asked my class, so does is what she's saying that feminism is good for men? And so, you know, it right from the very beginning of any of this curriculum, it's like the first thing you have to unpack. For sure. I think that's critical. And I would, yes, I agree with, first of all, I want to take this class. It sounds fascinating. And second of all, <laughs> you're welcome. I, I would love to, I, I think that's a great, I would love to have that question with any group of people. Yes. Feminism is good for men. Uh, there's an organization called a call to men out of New York, and they have an exercise called the man box. You can um, Google it. They have a lot about it on their website because patriarchy. Yes. I agree with you. If you are told that, you know, what's that old quote that if you're on third base, it's not, because you know, you you're born on third base and then you act like you just hit a triple. So that's, that's, not a good way to be a human. The other thing is that patriarchy tends to prefer one kind of man over a different kind of man, right? Patriarchy likes this ideal man, tall, strong, emotionally disconnected, in control, has money, has family connections. You know, there's like a certain persona that matches what patriarchy in in a lot of places it's white, right? I mean, it, it, it can be, um, things that are personality based and things that are physically based. And for any man that doesn't fit that, whether by choice or by body, 
automatically puts him at lower standing compared to the other men in his community. That's not good for them either. You know, patriarchy might benefit a certain kind of man, but it certainly doesn't benefit all men. And so I think anyone who has been othered in their life, any man who's been othered because they're not athletic, because they're skinny, because they're short, because they're whatever, because they um, are from a lower class would probably um, understand that and identify. So I do, I agree that feminism is great for everyone. Mm, Yeah. But, you know, I guess because since the eighties, you know, feminism has become the boogeyman um, in, in our, in American society anyway, uh, that it's, uh, it's, that's sort of a, a weird a realization, I think, you know, for some people. Yeah. And I, and because I do so much work outside of the United States, feminism has taken on a very, it's like, it's an, it's a Western concept, which it isn't when you, you know, um, when I was doing my PhD, I, I did my research on women's empowerment and I was looking at women's empowerment history. Women's empowerment has been around in every culture since the beginning of time. We've had women's empowerment activists, in all corners of the globe for hundreds of years. It's not a Western phenomena. It was actually coined in Southeast Asia by women, but the word feminism, unfortunately, has been vilified. And so I I tend to try really hard to get beyond the word and, and talk about the meaning, but there's still part of me that wishes the word wasn't seen as so evil too, because I- And am- actually, you don't really use feminism a lot in your book. I don't. don't, you talk about the concepts, but you really don't, um, yeah, you know, hammer that term (laughs) just to, yeah. I mean, I did that on purpose. Okay, cool. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And that's good. Yeah. I, I, I totally understand. It is, uh, it, it's a distraction from what you're trying to do. Precisely. That's a very nice way of putting it. Yeah. You know, so, you know, when we, when we trace women's legal status over time, you know, mm-hmm. we look at English common law when I talk about colonial times and uh, when um, England was the colonizing power in North America, women were property of their father, property of their husband. And so then, you know, as my course progresses, we talk about those legal changes. And I always talk about how while the laws changed, culture didn't. Mm-hmm. keep up. And then, you know, we kind of get right into what your book is talking about, which is, all right, so you you lobby, you change the law, yay, women can inherit, women right. can be on a jury, women can vote. Uh, the legal changes are easily kind of ex- celebrated. Mm-hmm. But when culture doesn't catch up and you're faced with the next obstacle, which is, so how do you make social change? How do you make that change? Um, and I really think this book sits right in that important space of the the law versus the cultural. Absolutely. Obs- you know. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's really, um, I agree. And, and when we, when I do advocacy training with groups, you know, I often say on, on day one, you know, real sustainable change happens when two things are going on at once. You need the top-down policy. The policy has to be there. You have to have protections. You have to have a legal framework behind you. You have to have accountability. You have to have a way, right? 
a place to go if your rights have been violated. But that's only half the battle, right? You also have to have people buying into that and following that policy. And then if people aren't following, you have to have some sort of mechanism that follows up. Like if you have a law that you can't kill someone, but there's no police department or or military or accountability, then it doesn't mean anything. And I think a good modern day flip to that is, you know, paternity leave. How many organizations in the United States government have on their books that you can take? Maybe it's the Family Leave Act or it's parental leave. There are a lot of men have who do have some access to parental leave when they become a father, but there is a culture that dissuades men from taking it. Because if you take that, you're, you're seen as lazy. I'm not serious about my career. Um, I just want time off, right. I'm putting my colleagues in a bad position by not pulling my weight. And so there's a culture that encourages men to reject that, um, benefit and keep working. And so that's why we have to, that's why the cultural piece is so unbelievably important. There's also something I think empowering about the cultural approach because only a select few of us are involved in work, right? Lawmakers, lobbyists, advocates. Um, we might show up for protests and that sort of thing or, or give money, but they're really written by a handful of people who work for Congress people, right? But all of us have the ability to participate in social change. And so I think there's something empowering about that is that I might have to wait for a family or for, for paid care for all for years, but tonight I can raise my kids differently. So in Equal Partners, there are exercises throughout the book that you can think about, reflect on, and even fill in like their little forms. So why did you include exercises intermittently throughout your, your book? Um, I like, how do you feel about that? I know that some people hate exercises and some people love them. So I figure I put them in there for the people that love them and the people that hate them are going to skip over them anyway. So that's okay. I, I added them and I'd love to know your thoughts about that. I added them because we can all understand feminist theory or women's history when we're sitting in a classroom or reading a book and we can agree with it intellectually, but then turning around and putting that into practice in our own life is really hard. And it's that bridge from theory to like how I'm going to change my behavior, how I'm going to change my words. You need, you need self-reflection that doesn't just happen instantaneously. You don't read an article and then start behaving differently. You need to have some kind of a process where you think, well, I used to say this, and now I'm going to say this, you know, and I'm going to have an, I'm going to be intentional about changing that behavior. And so those exercises are to try to get people to stop and have some self-reflection and, um, and think how about they're going to change their behavior. As a professional, I tend to facilitate groups. And so these are things I would do with a group. You know, if I had a five-day workshop with 25 people, it would be, you know, I would have, you'd share data and you'd share some case studies and you'd have some discussion. And then there would be a small group project or there would be an independent project where people would have that time for that self-reflection. But when you are just writing a book and putting it out there, that was the one way I could come up with to sort of try to replicate that facilitative process in someone's living room. So do any, does anyone do those? <laughs> I think it's terrific uh, because it really, uh, 
it takes you from being sort of a, a detached reader to being engaged in your own self-reflection. And so I thought it was great. You know what it reminded me of? And this is, you know, a Catholic, I guess, example. But when you go to pre-Cana before you get married in the Catholic church, they actually give you these kinds of exercises and reading passages and exercises for you to talk, have a conversation uh, with your fiance or whatever. Uh, and that's what it sort of reminded me of. It reminded me of going through pre-Cana. But I think it's really fantastic to think about what are my triggers? What are, those things are, I think, extremely helpful. And, you know, if people don't want to use them, they don't have to use them. Uh, they're there. You can use them or don't use them or. Yeah. I, you know. I, and I'm very happy. We just, um, for anyone out there who prefers audiobooks, we just added a download. So if you do prefer to listen to the book, there's a PDF that comes with it that has all of the exercises. So you don't miss out on that if you decide to do the, the audio version. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Yeah. It's very, very helpful, you know, and, uh, this book takes on an intersectional approach, as I mentioned before, when I talked a little bit about race, um, but you also include same sex as well as different sex couples. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how you approach the issue of pronouns and analysis when you're integrating all different types of families? I wanted to, uh, I think a lot of the research to date is very heteronormative in this area. And I wanted to get away from that. That's just not where we are in 2022. And a lot of the, the household dynamics that were traditionally female and male, if you keep it just talking about men and women and different sex relationships, you are not inclusive of people in same sex and queer relationships. There's also a lot of people who have re reversed roles where the male is the one who's the cognitive laborer or the stay at home or the alpha parent. And it's the female who's out, you know, um, earning and has an emotional detachment from the family. I've received emails from many of these men who, who are happy to have a book that makes they feel heard. And so I use the term male role and female role to try to be inclusive, to give a nod to our history of gender norms that our behavior is very much linked to the gender binary. And so that's why I call it female role and male role, but they are behaviors. They are roles. They are not biological. They are not uh, linked to our identity and they can shift and they can change. Um, and so I, I included same sex and queer couples in my research and they would also fall into, you know, a lot of the same patterns. You know, this person tends to do the indoor, this person does the outdoor um, or this person is the breadwinner, this person's the caregiver, and it takes a great deal of intentionality to have something closer to parity. Mm. That's great. So, and you also talk about the impact of race and gender on these couples. It's very, very effective in explaining this. And so can you talk a little bit about what you found when you interviewed men of color? First of all, I oversampled men of color in my sample. My, so I have half, half of my data set are men of color. And that was because they're underrepresented traditionally. And when we did have our interviews, I asked very specific questions about race or about their um, perception based on their identity. And what I learned or what it's, has been reconfirmed is that you can't separate the two. 
if a, if a dad of color told me about an experience and had some sort of a negative experience and he would say, were people treating me differently because I was a man doing women's work or were they treating me differently because my skin is brown and I live in a white suburb? You know, probably both. You know, you're never going to know. It's one and the same. They see me as a brown man doing women's work, and that adds to people's discomfort. And so, um, those were really important stories to highlight and talk about. I think it's really important, especially for white readers, to hear these stories because they're not experiences. I'm white myself, and these are really important experiences that I haven't had, and I need to hear about and read about from others so I understand. Um, you know, what, what perception is. Um, I had one dad tell me this, this story that it literally took the wind out of me when he was telling it to me, but he has a, um, a son with autism and his son can, can be very violent and have outbursts. And he said, my, you know, we'll be out in public and my son will have an episode and I'll have to physically restrain my son and carry him out to the car to get him home because that's the only thing I can do for the reset button. And he said, I am paranoid in my pit of my stomach that some point in time, someone's going to call the police because he said his son presents white and he's mm. worried someone's going to pick up the phone. And he said, and then the police are going to get involved. And this is not a situation that where the police need to be involved. And it's just going to be this extra layer of fear Mm. in this already incredibly difficult situation that my family is working with. Mm. So I just think that you can't separate um, identities and having an intersectional approach is really the only way forward. Absolutely. You know, and I think it makes this book even more useful makes this and because it not only is helpful for understanding how to uh, have a happier household and a more equitable household, but also teaches you empathy about what other people in other different types of households also are experiencing that don't live in live in different skin that you live in and mm-hmm. have a uh, different lived experience. And I, I really learned an awful lot. I mean, I, the, the story that really struck me was of the, uh, the man of color who inter- you interviewed, who talked about having trouble buckling their baby into the car seat and the baby's screaming and crying. And he's, he said that the neighbor's porch light goes on and he's like, Oh my God, you know? Yeah. yeah you know, I'm um, <laughs> brown skin. Right. Right. And all those, and then being othered and being treated differently and having people assume, I think he's the one that said, people always assume the worst in me. They always assume that I'm out to no good because of the skull, the color of my skin. And so when that porch light went on, it wasn't, Oh, someone's going to come help me because my kids have freaking out because every parent knows kids hate getting in car seats (laughs) and car seats are getting more and more complicated as the years go on. It wasn't like an immediate, Oh, that I'm coming to my rescue. It was an immediate, Oh my gosh, they're going to think I'm doing something horrible. Right. Yeah. And you know, when you read that and, uh, you know, it just, it teaches you it's, it's important to teach empathy, to teach, you know, uh, you know, I guess I think about the the woman in Central Park last year who um, called the police on an African-American man who was taking pictures of birds, I think, right? He was yeah. like a bird watcher. Yeah. And, and things like that. It's like, yeah, don't be that. Yeah. Don't yeah. Be, you know, if I just think if and and certainly education is helpful for for confronting some of 
some of that that's going on in society. So it's, it's so unfair um, to have to, to feel that way all the time. I just really heartbreaking. Um, So your, your book talks about different types of men, King of the castle, hands-on partners and equal partners. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the three types? Sure. And, and these are behaviors, not people, right? And it's, I think of it on a continuum. So let, if you're, because uh, this is on radio, so your podcast, if your left hand is king of the castle and your right hand are equal partners and somewhere in the middle are going to be the hands-on or the helpers, that's kind of resonated with, with my discussion since the book came out. And it's a continuum. So the, the hands are, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll define the endpoints, then that will help me define the middle. The king of the castle is sort of that old-fashioned, stereotypical male personality that takes zero responsibility for the home. Their job as provider for their family is to earn a paycheck, however much or however little it is, and their job is done. And anything they do in the home is a choice. So if they choose to play baseball with their kids on the weekend, that might be fun but it's their choice. And they can always say, no, I'm tired. I'm going to rest. And everyone would respect that. And an equal partner on the other end of the spectrum is someone who does half of the physical and cognitive labor in the home. And I think it's really important to not just stop at who's unloading the dishwasher and to talk about cognitive labor, anticipating the needs, managing the schedule, managing your kids, knowing what's coming up in six months in one year, um, knowing when kids are growing and they need new clothes, knowing schedules for pets, elder care, researching the you know assisted living facilities when you have a parent, all of those cognitive tasks that go into household work. And I'm not talking about equal partners in terms of 50-50 every day. I would never suggest that a married couple or a couple living together should follow them each other around with a Excel spreadsheet. But when you look at your relationship from 10,000 feet over the course of months or years, are you both doing your fair share? In the middle is where I think the most common persona is today. And that's the hands-on or the helper. And that's when the physical tasks might be close to 50-50. And the dad is happy to wear a baby Bjorn and go to the playground. The husband is happy to stop at the grocery store and get you know, whatever for dinner, but they need to be told they need direction because the cognitive labor still rests with that female role. She's still anticipating all the needs. She's still planning the dinners. She still knows who's going to watch the kids next Friday when it's, um, when there's no school, she knows what the kids are going to be for Halloween and where that, when you have to start buying those costumes. And so it's better than King of the castle. I fully admit that we've come from somewhere we have seen progress helpers better than nothing but we still have a lot further to go and so my book is sort of you know we don't see too many kings anymore thankfully there are they're still out there but i think there're less of them but one point i really wanted to drive home is i don't ever want to call that helper husband an equal partner i don't want to falsely give accolades to someone who's only doing 25 to 30% of the work and getting credit for half and i think there's a lot of frustration in marriages and households right now because the men think they're doing enough and their female counterpart is thinking no cuz i'm drowning and i'm resentful and i'm bitter And so I think if we can move from a helper hands-on situation to an equal partner, we would, 
we would solve a lot of that bitterness problem. And it can be done. It's doable. You know, uh, you know, I think I, th- I think that just reading your book and, and, and thinking about that, the, th- the idea of the cognitive labor really landed uh, for me, you know, because noticing, right, noticing, yeah. noticing that somebody put the cereal box back in the cabinet with no cereal in it, like an empty box. I'm always like, why? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Why? yeah, you knew it was empty. You took the last bowl of cereal, but um, the effort, the energy that takes to be the, noticing and and doing all that cognitive work takes away from your other and ener- your your total sum of well of energy. Yeah, and the other things that you want to be doing. Yeah, whatever that is, and so I I think that it's. Um, even if people just get that far. <laughs> with anywhere, that anywhere aha. Yeah. Anywhere along the continuum. You know, I don't, I think we can all collectively get there. I have talked to a lot of people in individual relationships who will just say, I, I've been talking to my husband or partner about this for years and they're not budging. And so I understand the tremendous frustration that comes when your partner isn't willing to budge, but I still think there are things, okay, maybe your relationship won't change, or maybe it will change very little, but what can you do to prepare your son to be an equal partner when he grows up? So even if your relationship isn't going to change, there are things you can do in your community to support the concept of gender equality for future generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very hopeful. So you did a lot of interviews, (laughs) interviewed 40 men. So what did you find out? I mean, a lot. That's kind of the second part of my book is sort of the lessons from them. One one of my biggest findings that I appreciate tremendously, when I started these interviews, I had a question on my protocol that was something to the effect of what was getting at the concept of a patriarchal dividend, right? Which is um, a theoretical concept from Cannell, who's a masculinity sociologist in Australia. This idea that like to be an equal partner, you have to reject privilege that the world is giving to you for being a man. And so I had this question that kind of got at that, like, what did, how did you give up your patriarchal dividend? And the, the first several men that I interviewed were just like, wait, 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 I didn't give up anything. I didn't, I'm not sacrificing. I'm not, I'm not doing something I don't want to do for the benefit of my partner. This is what I want to do. I benefit. I'm happy. And I benefit and my life is better because I'm an equal partner. I'm doing this for myself. I'm not doing this because I'm altruistic or because I'm a martyr or because I'm an exceptional husband. I'm doing this for me. It's selfish. And so I ended up changing the, my protocol to dig into that more deeply. And I found that the men who are equal partners are doing it for themselves. They're doing it because they are happier, more fulfilled than, than the, than the other trade-off, right. Mm -hmm. From, from not being an equal partner. So that was one thing that I really appreciated learning. Yeah. And I, that's, and that kind of ties back to, uh, and the earlier point about men being feminism, helping men that I, I think in my own teaching that, feminism made men happier. Yes. As well. 
Yes. You know. And that truly came out in these interviews. That's great. That's really interesting. Did you have a favorite story among your 40 equal partners, your EP40? Oh my gosh. No, <laughs> I have so many. I, I loved, I loved all of them. <laughs> I still do. Um, I love all of their stories. I'm trying to think of, so along the lines of what we were just talking about, um, there's a man uh, who's in Texas and he is a black and married to a woman and they have two kids and this is his third marriage. And he was telling me that I asked him, like, tell me about your first two marriages and how this one's different. And he said his first marriage, he was very young and it was in a different city and his wife wanted to be married to a gangster. And so he was trying to be this cool gangster. And so he said he was he was performing masculinity. He was performing this like super tough guy because that's what his girlfriend was into. They were both, you know, 18 or whatever. And he said, it wasn't me and it stressed me out and I hated it, but I was trying to make, I was trying to make her happy and to make her happy. I couldn't be truthful to myself. And that marriage ended. And then he was married to a woman who was white. And he said he was constantly performing. Now, I'm not saying that interracial marriages can't work. I'm just saying in this instance, he said he felt like he had to perform something that he wasn't to make her happy and to fit in with her world. And that marriage didn't make it. And now he's married to someone who he can be 100% himself, his own genuine self. He doesn't have to pretend to be anything. He doesn't have to be tough. He doesn't have to be, you know, uh, emotionless. He doesn't have to be um, fearless. He can be his own self. And just hearing his story of his evolution and how much he appreciated and how much he could see the benefit of being an equal partner because he had lived other experiences in his life. I really appreciated his story. And that's very honest Mm. to recognize and be able to talk about some mistakes maybe you made. Yeah. to take responsibility. That's yeah. really that the honesty is, and the frankness is, it's, that's really commendable. I can understand yeah. why that really stands out for you. And in having done all these interviews, that's really, that's something, you know, and then there's the section on female role models. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to confess, I had a really hard time thinking of my own female role models. I mean, professional model role models. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But to be um, like in a personal space. Yeah, I had I had a really hard time coming up with that in that exercise. Yeah, I can <laughs> I understand had, that because it hasn't been role modeled to us. We haven't seen a lot of women who truly only do half in the home. We know lots of women who take on 80, 90, 95 percent. Yeah. And I didn't want to be that. You know, right. I didn't, I really didn't want that for myself. So that was one of the hardest ones for me, I think, going That's through. Really yeah, it's very interesting. And, you know, the the baby showers, I thought was really interesting, too, because in um, in women's history, one of the I guess it's really like a famous, like classic article called The Female World of Love and Ritual by uh, Carol Smith Rosenberg. And in the article, Carol Smith Rosenberg examines letters, 19th century letters, and she describes how in the 19th century, women lived in sort of this very female dominated space where they relied 
on other women for their emotional well-being mm-hmm. and their emotional happiness. So friends, their sisters, their cousins, uh, all the women that they knew would support them if they were ill, when they were having a baby, uh, all the rites of passage. So the section on the ritual of the baby shower really reminded me of that because it is such a holdover kind of, I think, from that 19th century kind of female dominated world. So how did you tie baby showers into your book? I really got kind of obsessed with thinking about baby showers when I was writing this book. Um, I had baby showers when my own kids were were born. And I think that like any ritual and any tradition, there are beautiful things about it that you, that's why we keep doing them because it's a way I mean, I think about my own baby shower. It's a way for the women in my life to show me love, to show me support, to be excited for me as I start this new role in my life. I mean, becoming a parent's a huge deal, right? And so it's this way, it's this, as you said, rite of passage, like we're behind you. We have confidence in you. We're going to, you're not alone. We're going to help you through this. That's why they call them showers, right? We're showering love and gifts on you and preparing you for this next step. But there's also part, parts of traditions that perhaps we want to change, that they just don't resonate anymore with our current beliefs and values. And I think baby showers are one thing that we could maybe work on a little bit. I think that if you have an all-female shower, and I use my own example. So when my firstborn came, um, my female relatives and friends got together and gave me a, an all women's shower. And it's what I wanted. And I wouldn't change that for anything in the world because I'm very close with these women and I look up to them hugely. And that was an important time. I had looked forward to that time, but my uncles took my husband out for beers while I was having my baby shower. So I think back, okay, what are the implicit messages there? I'm sitting big as a house with getting clothes and cookbooks for making baby mush and breast pumps and books and what to expect when you're expecting. And my husband is eating barbecue and drinking beers. And I just thought we start this inequity before the baby even comes by implicitly telling the mother, you're responsible for the health and well-being of this kid. And your husband is going to be in the next room drinking beers. <laughs> and I just think hindsight, no one meant any harm. Baby showers are always given with love. Things we've changed the way we talk in the last 11, 12 years. But I'm just trying to think if there's ways we can tweak our traditions to make them match our values a little bit more. Now, um, showers where both expected parents are invited is a great way to do it. But I think you can still have an all-female shower and have that rite of passage. What I do now is I make a dad basket. If I'm invited to a female shower, my gift is for the dad. And it's not a baby baseball mitt. It's like the things he needs to be a parent, right? It's a book about sleep training or it's a whatever. It's like a baby thermometer and some burp cloths. It's concrete items that that guy is going to need to be a good dad to show him. I have confidence in you. You're going to be a great parent. These are some tools you're going to need. And I'm going to throw my book in there too, but just, um, 
I just think that there's some things that maybe we can reframe our traditions a little bit to make them a little bit updated. Yes. I think they're ready. I think there definitely is a a good history connection, but I do think a new shower or a new kind of a party to celebrate a baby coming. Yeah. Definitely needs some modern, a, a little bit of modernization. Yes. We appreciate it. Absolutely. There's also a section in the book on women who are embracers. Oh, yeah. What is an embracer? You know, I, I was trying to think of the counterparts to the, so if, if you are married to a king or living with a king or a hands-on husband, so you're not, because an equal partner is with an equal partner, right? So it's just two people with the same, but if you are the partner of a king or a hands-on, what does your life look like? And I was trying to articulate that to help people in the female role think through where they might be. And I came up with the embracer because I know so many embracers and I needed to I needed to articulate that. A lot of embracers I know are older women whose kids are outside of the home. And so they now, maybe maybe they're semi-retired or retired. And so they can run their home and they don't have kids around. So there's not a whole lot to do. And they can maintain all of that cognitive labor and physical labor and still have plenty of free time and still get a good night's sleep and still do whatever they want to do in their free time. And so they, they actually don't mind at all that they're married to a hands-on or a king, that they've come to like the control. They like that they can make the decisions in their household. They get to fold the laundry and they're fine with it. Um, And so I needed to articulate that, that not that everyone who's partnered with a king or a hands-on husband isn't upset that there are a lot of women who are okay with that. And I just wanted to make sure that was represented as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I do still think that there's a, a good sizable part of the female population that, uh, if, you know what, I, I also think that that consider themselves embracers or could be defined as embracers and that they um, are comfortable with that identity. It's, you know, we all know it, it's traditional. Yeah. Yeah. But that they're okay with it. And they're, and, and perhaps it might be because they, they have, they get joy from taking care of others. They're natural caregivers. And it also could be that they, they've linked some of their value in what they do in taking care of others. Like I am a good person because I take care of you, or I'm an okay person because I do this for the family. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If that's who you are. Right. And that's, and, and to me, that's what feminism is too you know, for you to be able to make your own choices. If your choice is that, you know, raising these children, you know, really hands-on is, is what I want for my, myself, my family, and we all agree on it, then, you know, rock on. I think that that's, that's fine. It's just, it is interesting um, to point out like the, the whole spectrum. I wanted to ask you uh, about a book that I really enjoyed by Rebecca Traister called All the Single Ladies. And in the book, Traister points out that there are more single women in the United States today than ever in American history. And she lists the reasons, you know, birth control and the availability of women to enter professions and education. And she, she talks about same-sex relationships and uh, divorces, you know, a lot of women who are either widowed or divorced women who are single. And 
she uh, talks a lot throughout the book about why there's this huge population of single women. And when I read your book, I kept thinking about the fact that your book is really adding on to her analysis. It's really, uh, you guys would be great on a panel together because you're talking about different things, but I think they really complement each other. My thought was, are there more single women, as she points out, because of the inequality in the household that maybe is leading some young some women to reject marriage because why do they want to have these kinds of domestic problems negotiations where they are harmed in this way so i wanted to know what you thought about that that's really interesting um I mean, I don't have I don't have data from the U.S. or Canada to respond to. Is that happening now? What I do know is that that's for sure happening in Japan. I've read a lot about how we know that the birth rate is below. Um, it, it, what is what is it called when they're not? The birth rate is below um, maintaining population. So the population is shrinking, marriage rates are shrinking, and they know that a lot of women have decided not to get married precisely for what you were talking about is because in Japan, there's really one way to be a wife and a mother, and it's expected to leave your job and it's expected to stay home and it's expected to be a full parent and not have a career. And there's very, very, very few women in Japan. This is slowly changing in Tokyo. I know I used to live there, which is why I'm kind of interested in, in Japanese um, culture, but, um, and it is for sure a reason why a lot of women are shying away from marriage. And I think it's because if you say there's only one way to be a partner and it's this, and it's severe, then I can see a lot of people wanting to reject that. But if you say there's lots of ways to be a partner and you can be yourself in any way you want and be with someone else, then I think you would have a lot more people attracted to partnership. So I think there's definitely something there. I just don't have any data at my fingertips on if that is, if, if that is manifesting in the U S but I think it's a great point of conversation. Yeah. You know, because if, if marriage is, um, if it's really hard to get to this place of equality and, um, you know, it's just not that appealing. <laughs> yeah, it's especially not. when people can cohabitate. Uh, you know, it used to be very judgment, very, very severely judged if you yeah. lived with somebody outside of marriage. I mean, that was could be a scandal even in your family. Yeah. Um. Now it's so hey, you know, we want to move in together. Uh, so it's just a it, the, the times have changed to a, a point where you know women have, like you said, like you know they just have some more choices. Yeah. Yeah. Really healthy. And yeah, I think it's really healthy. And the more we talk to young women about these issues before they become a partner, before they establish these behavior patterns, I think that's where we see the most, um, the most potential potential. Thank you. Potential for sure. Yeah. So this book is full of advice and guidance for household equality. Um, and for happiness, 
you know, happiness in our relationships, which everybody wants. Everybody needs to read this book because we all want this, right? We all want a happy households and happy families. So can you tell us one or two things that we can implement uh, to conclude our talk today? Like, is there anything that you can kind of leave us with as something that we can try? Sure. So let me, okay. Let me think of, I'm going to do two things. One of them is going to be a mindset shift. And one of one of them is going to be an actual like to do item. But I think, I think if everyone did these two things, we would start to see cultural change. The mindset shift is um, stop making excuses for men in the household. Stop thinking that men can't achieve equality. I hear women all the time. I hear men and women, people of all genders constantly making giving men an out, right? Like, oh, he's just disorganized. Oh, he's not good at multitasking. Oh, that's not the way he was raised. Oh, we just don't do it that way. Constantly making excuses for men so they don't have to do things. We need to stop that. We need to set the expectation that men and women, if we have equal capacity in a professional space, we have to have equal capacity in a domestic space. And so we need to raise our expectations of boys and men in a domestic space. So that's number one. It's just a mindset shift and you just catch yourself all the time. Like if you're making an excuse of why a man or a boy can't do something, stop and say, hey, would I make that same assumption with a female? And if the answer is no, then you might need to correct your. The second thing is about, let's start talking to younger people about this topic, right? I mean, in their, in your teenage years, in your twenties, Gen Z, nieces and nephews, your kids, uh, grandkids, your neighbors, people in your faith community, if you're a teacher or a coach, you have like endless access, but bring this up to young people. So it's on their radar and they know that it's a problem with married people today. And if they get ahead of it, they can prevent a whole world of frustration in the future. So, and not just talk about it with girls, but talk about it with everyone. Um, because we need to, we need, I think we need to have young people know that this is something they're probably going to encounter. And the earlier they know about it, the better. Mm, that's great. It's like, I think like 50 years ago, Gloria Steinem wrote, our job is not to learn, but to unlearn. Yes, a hundred percent agree. And Gloria Steinem also said, we've done a really great job at changing the way we raise girls, but we haven't done a great job in changing the way we raise boys. Absolutely. So, you know, it, I just think this book is, has infinite use and, I, I really hope everybody takes a takes a look at it. And you know, you can really hop around and and take what you like from it. But I think it's wonderful, wonderful read. I want to thank Kate Mangino for joining me today on the show. I really enjoyed our discussion of Kate Mangino's new book, Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equality at Home, published by St. Martin's Press, also an audiobook, which I also learned. So until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading. <laughs>